Today's scripture comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, from the New Living Translation. Although believers devoted themselves into, into the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer, the deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and, the, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we, we jump in, I, uh, I want to take a minute just to backtrack a little bit here. And uh, I, I want to again say congratulations to all the graduates. I realize that my four kids make up uh, two-thirds of all the graduates in the room today. But um, congratulations to everyone um, on that. Uh, and congratulations to the teachers. You know, we, we, we talk about the impact on students that COVID has made in the last two and a half years or so, um, but we often don't recognize the impact that's had on teachers. Thank you for your resiliency and your creativity and just gutting it out day after day, making it up as you go along, right? Trying to challenge things like learning loss and social and emotional uh, lack of development because of how COVID has interrupted that and then you dealing with the brunt of that sometimes. So thank you. Yeah. My name's Chris, Chris Schaffner. Um, my pronouns are he and him. Uh, and we are wrapping up, I think, our series called Kaleidoscope, Why Does It Matter? And we're talking today about community. Now, as I said already, we have four graduates this year. And over the course of seven days, we went to two graduations from Chicago to Peoria for all four kids. And it was mayhem. We had a lot of lasts over the last 12 months. Last first day of high school. Last, last day of high school. Last prom, last basketball game, last softball game, last musical, last awards night, last parent-teacher conferences, last days of having legal minors. I no longer have a minor in my home. Each experienced as loss and grief. And each last event is met with, feet, with tears and sadness, and yet hopeful excitement about what's next. As each of our kids have talked to us about their future, their colleges, their plans, their careers, plans uh, for where they want to live and the kind of life that they hope to have and the impact that they hope to have in the world, each expressed a desire to make a lasting difference towards making the world a better place, better than the one that they inherited. 
We've raised them to believe that they can and they will leave the world a better place for everyone than the world that they found. Three out of four going into education. So the future is hopeful and exciting. But after this week, I'm reminded how utterly terrifying that is as well. Thoughts and prayers. Less than a week after the high schoolers graduated, we witnessed another slaughter of innocents at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. And that was on the heels of two other massacres of black and Asian communities. All their dreams and their hopes and those children are gone. Any number of imagined futures vanished in a cloud of gun smoke. Parents forced to experience their child's lasts prematurely. But it's just another day in America. Another kid killed at school. Thoughts and prayers. Okay, at the same time, our church is preparing uh, for another uh, trip to Honduras. Right? This is something that was disrupted by COVID, but something that has been a part of our fundamental DNA. I've never been. I've wanted to go, but having four kids um, makes that hard sometimes. Um, and, and so I decided to finally do some research on, on, on Honduras, and, and, and I learned, uh, I actually went down the rabbit hole. You, you do that, right? You go to a website, and then you, you're chasing after a thing, and then you find out I'm, I'm neck deep in blood sacrifices among the Mayan culture. That's where I ended up. Like, I was like, tell me about Honduras and the indigenous people. And next thing I know, I'm like, there's temples and, and altars for blood sacrifices of, uh, and, and, and the Mayans. And I was, uh, uh, I, I just went down there. You know, the Mayans were an ancient culture whose mythology is the stuff that Indiana Jones movies are made of. Um, but I did learn about that they engage in human sacrifices. They would make these sacrifices to the sun god. Several times a year, they would round up a group of tributes and slaughter them on this stone altar. And they believed that that offering of human life would appease the sun gods and would save them from the scorching rage of that deity, instead yielding rain and crops and abundance. And they would intentionally offer up the best of their community, the smartest, the strongest, because as the website that I traveled down uh, stated, what kind of God wants the losers? Preach, Mike. I mean, that sounds insane to us, though, right? Like, totally bonkers. Like, who would do that? Who would offer up blood sacrifices? And yet, in the 20 years since Columbine, there have been 250 school shootings in the United States, impacting approximately 311,000 students. No, you can add one more to that. So when we look at these numbers, I don't know how we can scoff at the insanity of an ancient ritual. That custom is really no crazier than the wealthiest country in the world letting nearly 3,000 kids die by gun violence every year. Many of them are at school. Many of them are in the streets. But thoughts and prayers. I am so angry. Usually I meet these incidents with grief and sadness and disbelief. I am pissed off right now 
and I don't know what to do with it. I feel like sometimes we're just kicking at the darkness and rage tweeting into nothing because it feels like something. Every child killed in a school shooting or on the streets is a sacrifice to the God of guns at the church of the NRA. I'm not talking about a metaphor. Our masses of dead children are literal, actual blood sacrifices. Like the Mayans of Copan, we somehow figure that the death of these children is the price we must pay for our twisted notion of freedom. Some capitalist orgy at the abundance that can only come to pass when the bounty of this great land is protected by civilian artillery. Thoughts and prayers. It's nuts, but we keep doing it. Marching the kids off to school like lambs to slaughter, where their underpaid teachers double as human shields, where they have a greater chance of dying by violence than any other country in the developed world. Thoughts and prayers. And still, the guns themselves are protected with religious fervor. Thoughts and prayers. And it's easy to blame the NRA. It's easy to blame gun manufacturers and investors or anybody that profits from the industry. We can blame politicians whose cowardice and fealty to the gun lobby continues to block common sense legislation that almost 90% of Americans support. But there's a hard truth that we rarely name. The church is complicit as well. Blood atonement or sacrificial atonement is the idea that Jesus had to die to somehow save us from the wrath of God. This notion lies at the heart of American Christianity and as the Christian narrative has shaped our nation's culture in many ways. This problematic theology can be found at the root of many of our shared evils. For instance, our attachment to the death penalty. Even when all other civilized nations have evolved past this barbaric practice, or in the idea of corporal punishment, the once popular and still accepted myth that a child might somehow be saved by an act of redemptive violence, thoughts and prayers. Our love of war might be traced back to the same doctrine. Our belief that might makes right and our ability to do, to so often justify force over diplomacy. We can also cite the many layered issues within our criminal punishment system one that is rooted more in retribution than in restoration. Within all of these greater social issues, we find embedded the same notion of God as a raging tyrant, not a loving, nurturing creator, but a callous deity demanding blood. Blood and more blood in return for the gift of not damning us to eternal hellfire. Thoughts and prayers. If we believe in a God that needs blood sacrifice in order to preserve our soul from hell, then that idea might make it more palatable to make us more comfortable with students' lives being the cost of our nation's freedom. I doubt most folks would make that connection at the conscious level, but it is beneath the surface and at work in our shared narrative. Listen to the prophet Isaiah reflects regarding God's perspective on thoughts and prayers during a time when social injustice was rampant within the community of God's chosen people. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord, 
I have more than enough burnt offerings of ram and the fat of fattened calves. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayers, I will hide my eyes from you. And when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widows. The lectionary reading today from Psalm 97, which was not planned, I had not read that ahead of time, paints a picture of a triumphant King Jesus on the throne vanquishing the enemies of righteousness and justice. But it is a stark contrast to the church in America today. See, when the church has been made comfortable by its place at the center of things, those inside of it too rarely question the narratives and images we've been given. The church is meant to exist on the margins and to challenge the empire. Instead, it has set up shop at the heart of capitalism, adopting its same measures of worth, the same secular parameters of justice, but the notion of a punishing God is incomplete. Nor is the trans- and is the transactional understanding of atonement. Like many of our misguided Western notions, it comes from a surface reading of a few scriptures taken out of context in the wider gospel. It is not a true reporting of who God is, nor of who we are meant to be. But we keep coming back to this altar, believing somehow the cost of freedom is more blood and more death. If we can't see how twisted that is, or how closely linked our backwards theology is to our violent wreck of a social system, then we need to go back to the beginning of something and start over. Of course, that's not that easy. We can't go back. There is no unwinding this carnage, no gifting the babies killed in America's classrooms and streets back to their broken parents. There is no worthy apology, only thoughts and prayers. But maybe there can be atonement. As in so many other instances where the church has done great harm, the church has also, it also has power to do great healing and transformation. In fact, we have a responsibility to do so. To dig deeper, to ask harder questions, to live for complicated relationships and not easy answers. We are called to put our faith to work around advocacy and action organizing for change that will reduce guns from their idle status to the inanimate objects that they are. The the Christian community has not historically shown up for this fight. And as people who claim to follow a revolutionary, nonviolent savior who was killed at the hands of the state, it's time to change that. But first we have to reclaim the gospel and its church. The sins of the past cannot be undone, but maybe atonement is possible. 
Once we learn that true restoration and the true love of God comes not with more blood, but with much, much, much less blood and so much more love and righteous anger. According to the Education Fund to Stop Gun Violence, the Brennan Center for Justice, the American Public Health Association, and Cure Violence Global, the root causes of gun violence include income inequality, toxic masculinity, poverty, underfunded public housing, under-resourced public services, underperforming schools, lack of opportunity and, and perceptions of hopelessness, easy access to firearms by high-risk people, and lack of social mobility, the ability to see yourself and the pathway to better positioning yourself in our community. And while we need to rely on laws to limit access to guns, will, that alone will not stop gun violence. But I want you to hear this. The role of the church can play a huge role in addressing the underlying systemic issues I just noted. I'll fast forward to the book of Acts. After Peter announces the Spirit's creation of a new kind of community, Acts traces the rapid growth of those communities in various places around the region. The community summarizes Acts 2, 42 through 47, and chapter 4, 32 through 38. And these are the most concentrated descriptions of what the, what the new community looks like and how they operate. So indeed, the texts themselves are remarkable in describing the scope of commitment and shared life of early believers because the summaries have many similarities. And so I'm going to discuss them kind of both in tandem. And I'm doing this to set a, to set a tone for how we, if we operate empowered by the Holy Spirit through the values and the guidelines set forth in Scripture, how we can literally impact the world around us to address these social ills. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people, all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. Acts 4 says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. I want to read that again. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as who owned lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds from what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native from Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So while these works don't necessarily describe the work that folks did, uh, it is keenly aware and concerned with the deployment of two things. Power and possession. Two realities that are often an outcome of human labor. 
The first thing to note in comparison with the surrounding society is that Christian communities cultivate a very different set of practices with regard to the use of power and possessions. It is clear that the early Christian community understood that the power and possessions of the individual were not to be saved for the comfort of the individual, but were to be expended wisely, invested for the good of the Christian community. Slated succinctly, goods are for the good of others. More than anything else, life in the kingdom of God means working for the good of others. Two things should be stated here. First, these texts ask us to understand our identity primarily not as an individual, but as a member of the community of God. The good of the community is the good of each individual member. So second, and this is a radical departure from an economy in which they encourage patronage, right? Patronize, um, from a patronage economy that at the time marked the Roman economy. In a patronage system, gifts from the rich to the poor create a structure of systemic obligation. Every gift from a benefactor implies a social debt now owned by the beneficiary. This system created a sort of pseudo-generosity in which generous patrons often gave out of self-interest, seeking to accrue honor connected to patronage. In essence, the Roman economy viewed generosity as a means to an end. It was a means to social power and status. Those notions of systemic reciprocal obligation are completely absent in the description of Acts 2 and 4. In the Christian community, giving is to be motivated by a genuine concern for the flourishing of the beneficiary, not for the honor of the benefactor. Giving has little to do with the giver and everything to do with the receiver. This is a completely different socioeconomic system. So like Luke's gospel, Acts regularly demonstrates that Christian conversion results in a reorientated approach to possessions and power. Moreover, this insistence that goods are to be used for the sake of the neighbor is pandered explicitly off of Jesus' life, mission, and primarily in his self-giving death. 